You are listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Today, our returning guest is the author of a new book called From Death Row to Freedom, The Struggle for Racial Justice in the Pitsley Case. The writer of this book is Philip Hubbard, and it's a great pleasure to have you back on Pursuing Justice today. Let me tell our listeners, those who are tuning in for the first time, I I encourage my listeners to tune into part one. But just in case you didn't hear part one, my guest served for 19 years on the Third District Court of Appeal of Florida and also served 12 years as a public defender in Miami and Washington, D.C. He was an adjunct professor of law in Miami for 30 years and a defense attorney for Freddie Pitts and Wilbert Lee, the subjects of this incredible book, for 10 long years. So we have spoken about many details of this case. So I wonder if if you can do a very, very brief overview of the case, very brief, hoping people will tune into part one so we don't have to give them lots of details, but go ahead. Okay, the case arose in the Florida Panhandle uh, in a little town of, outside the little town of Port St. Joe on the eastern end of the uh, uh, Florida Panhandle. And it involved a uh, all-night gas station. Two attendants at the station were held up at gunpoint. They were robbed. They were taken out into the countryside. And uh, several days later, they were discovered murdered. Four weeks later, in a mindless rush for judgment, Pitts and Lee, or two young black men, were picked up and were sentenced to death for this crime. That's four weeks. Many years later, in September of 1975, Pitts and Lee were pardoned on the ground of innocence. That's very important. They weren't just pardoned. They were pardoned on the ground of innocence by the Florida Governor Reuben Askew, and by the Florida cabinet. And then in April of 1998, the Florida legislature finally awarded them $500,000 apiece for their 12 years of wrongful imprisonment, one of the most incredible injustices that I have ever witnessed in my 60 years as a member of the Florida Bar, and the most important case I was ever involved in. And I asked you in our first conversation why, after so many, many years, you wrote this book. And I really loved your answer that it was such an important and key case that you did not want people to forget about it. Exactly. That it it took its place in, in Florida history. Yeah. And I didn't write this book to tell you what a great lawyer I was in this case, because I wasn't. I wasn't able to do it. And to get these people out of prison at all, that was done mainly by other people to get a a pardon for these. I had some role in it, but not much. Mm -hmm. But I'm not here to tell you what a great lawyer, because I wasn't. I did a credible job, and I'm proud of what I did. I really am. You should be. You should be. But I was not the decisive factor in this case. I just kept these people alive while other people, principally Gene Miller, the uh, writer for the Miami Herald, who uh, thankfully stayed on this case for uh, eight and a half years. 
and and got this part. He's he he really is the one who got the part. We did. Right, and I wanted to mention him. He was su- such an important player, and you dedicate the book to him. Tell us a, a, li- a little bit about Gene Miller, if you can. Gene, I, I, this, it's, it's hard to, to capture Gene Miller. I, we owe so very much to him. I dedicate the book to him. He was called by his other reporters in the, in the, in the newsroom as, as the conscience uh, of, the, of the newsroom. What he really liked to do was to uncover miscarriages of justice. And he got two Pulitzer Prizes for, for doing just that. And one of them was on the Pitsley case. He investigated this case. He wrote literally hundreds of articles about it for about eight and a half years for the Miami Herald. He wrote a book about it before the pardon was granted and sent the page proofs to the governor, Governor Askew, in an effort to persuade him to pardon these men on the grounds of innocence. And he was successful. And Governor Askew later said that Gene Miller was the main person responsible for getting this pardon. Hmm. That's really quite a tribute. So let's back up a little bit because we finished, I believe, after the, the trial, that first trial now, uh, was that August 28th, 1963? That's correct. Okay. So now, what happened after that trial ended? What happened after that is Turner, their lawyer, supposedly, just mm-hmm. packed up his bags and left the courtroom and refused to appeal the case. Hmm. Finally, Judge Fitzpatrick, the trial judge, ordered him to take an appeal. He did not want to take an appeal. He was ordered to take an appeal, and he did file it. He, he did take the appeal. He filed, and this is hard to believe, but it's true, a three-page brief in the Supreme Court of Florida with no legal citations, nothing. And he said they, they had pled guilty voluntarily. He, in effect, told them, I didn't want to take this appeal, but the judge made me do it. <laughs> and then he tried to argue that the, the only error the trial court did was to impanel this jury uh, to determine whether they should live or die. He's the one who asked for it. A completely frivolous point. He had one good point on appeal, which, of course, he never raised, which was the plea of guilty was involuntary. Mm-hmm. The plea of guilty, uh, I mean, there was they were terrorized. And as a matter of fact, Judge Fitzpatrick never made a clear inquiry, which most judges are, are, do, particularly in capital cases, to determine whether or not it was a free and voluntary. He had a good point, but of course he was involved in the in the coercion himself. He couldn't raise that. Yeah. But a three-page brief, I mean, I just I couldn't believe it. With no legal citations, he admitted that's the first time he had ever done that in his career, mm-hmm. and he admitted the point was frivolous when I took his deposition. He admitted it. And now I wanted to mention that the ACLU stepped right. into the case right. in 1965 and remained on the case for 10 years. Now, when do you begin your role in this case? Okay. What happened was after the Supreme Court of Florida, he took the case to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court affirmed the conviction, and then he abandoned the case. He, he just left. Mm-hmm. The ACLU, he then 
letters were written by Pitts and other people trying to get ACLU to get involved. And they finally did in 1965, which was a year after the Supreme Court had uh, affirmed the conviction. I had previously volunteered my services. I was working as a part-time public defender in Miami, and I volunteered my services uh, uh, to work on any case the ACLU might want to give me involving a capital case. And so they sent me over this case. It was not a cause celeb at the time. If it was, I'm sure I wouldn't have gotten it. I was a very young lawyer at the time. And um, a year later, the, the case broke wide open. That's when Curtis Adams uh, confessed to the Port St. Joe murders. And I was informed about it. And uh, well, then the case just it was a spectacular case after that. But when I first got it, that's all it was. And what I raised at the time was that the grand jury that indicted these defendants uh, was chosen from a venire from which black people had been systematically excluded. That was a fr uh, the uh, trial court up there denied it without a hearing. The first district court of appeal affirmed without an opinion. I had appealed it then to the Supreme Court of Florida, and they declined to take the case. Hmm. Now, did you handle the case alone or? Was there someone working with you? Yes, I did. I, and the principal lawyer of the case, by the way, was not me. It was Erwin uh, Block, uh, a much more experienced uh, criminal lawyer than me. He was the main counsel. I was the secondary counsel. He was a Miami lawyer. He was a member of the American Civil Liberties Union, member of the, of the legal panel. He volunteered his services. And he did a magnificent job. Also, Maurice Rosen, who was also a member of the legal panel, didn't do any of the court work, but he did a lot of the out-of-court work and, and keeping tabs on our witnesses and doing investigation work. So it was a three-man team that worked I on see. this case. But you're the only one that wrote a book about it out of the three of you, right? I, I, I'm the only one who wrote a book about it. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the only one alive. Practically everybody who's died in this case is so old. Erwin Block has died. Uh, Maurice Rose has died. All the police officers have died. The judges have died. I'm one of the last persons standing, really. Well, that's wonderful because it's great that this book was written so that it will go down in history. That's very, very important. So around this time, I'm trying to remember, whereabouts are we in terms of a date uh, when Curtis Adams is arrested in the Florida Keys for armed robbery? Right. That would have been sometime in 1965, I believe. Okay. He'd come down to Fort Lauderdale initially, and 16 days later, and this was in 1963, he commits another murder. And then he goes down to the Keys and he robs a, a, another business down there, and he gets caught. So this would have been late 1964, early 65, something like that. Okay, you say a couple of years after the original event. Mm, yeah, more like a year. Yeah. Okay. He reveals that he knew about the murder in Port St. Joe, but nobody believed him. His girlfriend told the police something shocking. What was that that she told the well, police? Well, when the Broward County Sheriff's Office got involved in the case, they uh, talked to his girlfriend, among other things. And the girlfriend said that uh, she was living 
with Curtis Adams at the time of these murders in Port St. Joe, and that he came home, he went out with the express purpose of uh, robbing uh, a station or something in the area so they could get enough money to leave Port St. Joe. And he came back that evening and told her he had to murder these two guys. Uh, they were witnesses to the crime. He had to murder them. And the next night, it really hit him because he knew these two men and he liked them. He was friends with them, but uh, he couldn't leave any witnesses, he said. So he shot them and killed both of them. And it, uh, that night, she said he was so upset about it, he, he started the shakes, what she called the shakes. Hmm. Just she, The bed sh shook while he was trying to get to sleep. And he then related to her in detail how he had committed these, these, these murders. So she became a very important witness against him because of course. She, she obviously separated from him uh, as soon as she could. But it was the Broward Sheriff, so not Key West, that um, elicited this confession. Then in 1966, Broward Chief Detective Lang moves to reopen the case. Where did that go? Yeah, well, Lang was working on the Fort Lauderdale killing that Adams had, had committed. As an offhand thing, he asked, uh, he, he, there was an informer, a jail informer that tipped him off about this, Jesse Pate. A and, snitch. Oh, yeah, that was his name. And, he, uh, and Jesse <laughs> Pate tipped him off uh, about it. And uh, so then they investigated and they did find that, that Adams was involved in this Fort Lauderdale murder. But then he asked Pate, sort of offhand, did he ever tell you about any other murders? Oh, yeah, he said. He's, he murdered these guys in Port St. Joe, too. And um, he described exactly what, what, what he told him about that. So, so what Lang tried to do then was, my God, he, he found out there were two men on death row having sentenced for a crime that this man had committed. So they got in touch with the state attorney, and the state attorney called the state attorney up in Port St. Joe, J. Frank Adams, and told them that they had the man who actually murdered these people, and that something should be done to take these two men off death row. J. Frank Adams, the state attorney, wasn't interested in the least. In fact, he'd forgotten the names of Pitts and Lee. He says, he's got two men on death row. He didn't call them men either, but he, and he wasn't interested. And, and in fact, they stonewalled us then for the next eight and a half years, refused to reopen the case. Now, here we have a case where the actual murderer confesses to having murdered these two men in Port St. Joe. And in detail, got, too. I mean, in, in detail. detail. And then you've got two men serving time and waiting for their execution date for, right. for this murder. Why in the world would justice not have been done immediately to take these men off death row? Racism. racism. That's the only explanation. Racism. They were they were convinced, no, this was a black on white killing based on virtually mm -hmm. nothing. And um, yeah. Curtis Adams, they knew Curtis Adams, and uh, he was white. Uh, he was a good old boy. He, he wouldn't do this. Even though he confessed. It was, total, it was uh, you know, this, it was racism. I mean, there's no yeah. other way to explain it, really. Yeah. Well, now, you know, we're still at the 
really early years of the case. And as you have told us, eventually there was justice done, but there were there were things in between. There was a hearing. Tell us what happened over those years to finally get these two men off death row. What I did was when I, I, we got all this new evidence coming in, mm-hmm. I filed a, uh, a second motion to set aside the defendant's convic- conviction in, uh, in Port St. Joe and um, listed as uh, three grounds. Number one was that uh, Pitts and Lee had been coerced into pleading guilty by the police and their own lawyer and that they were totally innocent of these crimes. And number two, that Pitts and Lee were represented by an incompetent court-appointed lawyer, Fred Turner, and that finally, that the state had suppressed evidence of innocence favorable to, to Pitts and Lee, namely, that Willie May Lee, the so-called eyewitness, had made a statement to the state attorney himself that someone else was involved with this crime, Lamson Smith, along with Freddie Pitts. Then then she changed it to include Pitts and Lee. But this was evidence favorable to the defense, and and that was suppressed. It was never revealed to Fred Turner, the defense lawyer in the case. We finally got a hearing in Port St. Joe. They appointed, uh, the Supreme Court of Florida appointed Charles Hawley, a uh, circuit judge out of Clearwater, to actually hear the new evidence. And uh, we had a week-long hearing up there, a real tumultuous hearing. I really can't get into all the details. But in the end, Judge Holly granted our motion to set aside the convictions. And he did it on two grounds. First, on the ground of innocence. And secondly, on the ground that the state had suppressed evidence favorable to the the defense. The state then took an appeal from that to the First District Court of Appeal, and the First District wrote an extensive opinion, uh, retried the case, in my opinion. They picked what they liked. They disregarded a lot of the rules of appellate procedure, in my opinion, and affirmed the conviction. They then, however, certified it to the Supreme Court of Florida for final resolution. While that was pending in the Supreme Court of Florida, Bob Shevin was elected state attorney general, very popular in the state and really had a very bright political future. But he was very troubled about this case. He studied it. He spent a lot of time on it and read a lot of the transcripts, spoke to a a number of the lawyers, and and then he, he had them file a confession of error. And what that meant was he agreed to a new trial because he thought that the evidence was clear that the state had suppressed evidence favorable to the defense, namely Willie May Lee's statement blaming someone else for the murders. And the Supreme Court accepted the confession, ordered a new trial, and then we went back to Port St. Joe and later to Mariana to try the case. I see. It was a pyrrhic victory, however, because we had a three-week trial. By the way, there was a Ku Klux Klan rally a couple of weeks before the trial. That's how bad this, this case was. Mm-hmm. Through the black area of Mariana, that's where it was tried. We couldn't get the case out of this area, by the way. They appointed another judge because nobody in the, in the local area wanted to try these cases. So the Supreme Court appointed a Judge Smith out of Ocala uh, to try the case. And he didn't move the case for us 
from Fort St. Joe to Mariana, but that's only 70 miles. And the case was equally notorious in Mariana and in the entire circuit. He wouldn't move it out. We wanted it to be tried in Tampa or in uh, Orlando or West Palm Beach, where we get a more uh, neutral jury. He wouldn't do it. The jury examination showed everybody knew everything about this case, virtually, virtually everybody. And uh, they'd been subjected also to a series of very vitriolic editorials and news coverage by the Panama City News Herald. They're under new management now, new ownership, completely different paper. But at that time, they really went after it. And it was an us against them kind of, mm-hmm. kind of coverage. These, these bad people from Miami and New York and Washington have come down here and are and creating a lot of trouble and so on. And so, of course, we lost the case. Uh, we lost it again, and they were sentenced to death. And we had to take another appeal. And by the time we finally got to the Supreme Court of Florida, the pardon came through, and that I moved see. the whole case. So if if the pardon had not come through, what would have happened to these two men, Phil? Well, I was very optimistic that we would uh, the Supreme Court would take the case I because see. it was it was really a notorious case. And, and I think we'd presented a very compelling case for review. That's another thing which should be mentioned. In this trial, the trial judge excluded all of the Curtis Adams evidence and said it was hearsay. I tried to argue it was admissible under an exception to the hearsay rule, but the judge really didn't understand that there was any exceptions. I mean, he just said, well, it's hearsay, and that's the end of it, you know. And there. Uh, now, today, the law has changed. The Supreme Court's already issued an opinion about a, several months after they got convicted, which would have clearly allowed these statements to, to come in. But now the current law is, is that if a person makes a statement out of court in which they admit to a, a, a killing that's, or a crime someone else has committed, it's admissible if it's corroborated, if it's corroborated. And this, this killing clearly was. I didn't get to go into all the corroboration, but there's a great deal of corroboration. Did Curtis Adams ever serve time for this particular no. murder? No, they never not. prosecuted him. And of course, did. they could have because there's no statute of limitations to first degree murder. They That's refused right. to prosecute him. But uh, Adams got life imprisonment I for see. the murder in Fort Lauderdale, and he got. 20 years for the for the robbery in Key West, and another 10 years on top of that for escaping from the jail. Uh, <laughs> they eventually caught him and brought him back. So he had a 30-year sentence when he was finally sucked into the Fort Lauderdale investigation. And then he got life on that. He died in prison. He did. He in prison. I was going to ask you what happened to him. So the men, after the pardon, full pardon, the men were released in September 19th of 1975. Correct. What happened to the men after they were released from prison? They both came to um, Miami. Uh, we had a, a national press conference, by the way, because this really was kind of the granddaddy of all known wrongful convictions. It was almost unheard of in those days that somebody would act- actually be exonerated who was mm-hmm. serving time in death row. That was almost that's, unheard of. That's not true today. A lot of that's changed. That's right. That's but, right. But that, and as a result, the national press was there. Hmm. And uh, television people, the networks, they were all there. They all wanted to interview Pitts and Lee hmm. on, uh, 
what it felt to be exonerated after 12 years. Yeah. We then got a plane to uh, Miami out of, out of Gainesville. They were met in Miami with another press corps and a, and a whole group of uh, well-wishers. They were first-page news on the Miami Herald, and we were the second reported case in the entire country. This was, this was national news. Wow. They got both of them lived out the rest of their lives in Miami without any criminal incident. They lived mm -hmm. productive lives. One of the nicest people I ever represented in my life. I mean, that these two guys would commit murder was just beyond me. And um, Lee, uh, ironically, got uh, employed as a rehabilitation officer at the Dade County <laughs> Jail. And wow. um, Pitts formed his own trucking firm. And uh, they lived very productive lives. Of course, they took their money, which they eventually got, and bought nice homes in Miami and lived out the rest of their lives. That's wonderful. Um, That's Lee got a first-page coverage when he passed away at a wonderful memorial service here in Miami. Unfortunately, Pitts died in obscurity. I wanted to close. We're, we're just about out of time. I wanted to read something right at the beginning of your book that you wrote, which I, I felt was worth sharing. And the statement you write is, the enormity of the injustice done to the petitioners in this case is almost beyond belief that such an event could happen in this country, in this day and age, is a reminder to all of us that injustice of enormous magnitude is still very much among us. No evasions, no rationalizations, no highly skilled legal argument can quite obscure this simple truth. And then I wanted to read a short statement by Freddie Pitts that you cite at the beginning of your book. And he says, it would have been easy to come out of prison feeling all whites were racist and that the entire legal system was bad. But really, in the end, it was white people and the system that eventually saw justice was done. I like that you put that at the beginning of your, your book. Well, this was a pure honor and pleasure on my part to have you with us for uh, two podcasts. And I, I just think anyone listening will be fascinated by your passion for the, this case and your dedication to making sure that it was noted, duly noted with your, your wonderful, wonderful book. So thank you so much. And I also want to thank Lisa Paley, who is a part of the, the Miami Book Fair, because she saw your book and thought I would really uh, love to read it and interview you. And I, I thank her for making that happen. Otherwise, I would never have known your book existed. So thank you to the Innocence Project of Florida that sponsors my podcast. And my heart is always uh, with them and always will be. I served on their board for six years. And thank you for Jordan Moore, my producer at the Pod Cabin, for doing the podcast and making it available to the world. My so, honor and pleasure to be here. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. And uh, I just want to say that next time I have two people from a nonprofit called Empowerment Avenue, Emily Nonko and Rashan Thomas. 
and they will be my guests next time. So thank you for listening. Thank you, Mr. Hubbard, for your time and your expertise. And I hope you'll join us next time on Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendon.